I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Arts Cafe by Jonathan Dick, a doctoral student here at Penn, comes to us from the University of Toronto, has been a Fulbright fellow and who has been supported by the Research Council of Canada and whose work focuses on connections between realism, the history of science, theories of figuration, and the history of literary criticism. And by Jack Gieskink, an urban and digital cultural geographer and environmental psychologist whose research explores how co-productions of space and identity in digital and material environments support and or inhibit social, spatial, and economic justice, who is Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Kentucky, and whose 2020 book, which I just received today as a gift, is called A Queer New York, Geographies of Lesbians, Dykes, and Queers, 1983-2008, to A Historical Geography of Lesbian, Queer Society, and Economies in New York City. And by Erica Kaufman on this Erica Kaufman Day here at the Kelly Writers House. <laughs> Yay, poet, teacher, and teacher's teacher, whose books include Post Classic, Roof Books 2019, and Instant Classic, Roof Books 2013, and who is co-editor of No Gender, Reflections on the Life and Work of Carrie Edwards, 2009, who is the director of the Bard College Institute for Writing and Thinking, and I'm proud to say a longtime member of of the ModPo community as a teaching assistant and the curator of ModPo's Teacher Resource Center, Erica Kaufman. It is indeed Erica Kaufman Day here. <laughs> let, me, let me state for the record, you know, let me state for the record, because people who are going to encounter this podcast years from now are going to say, what is Erica Kaufman Day? Is that something that happens every year? Anyway, we're, we're, it's a triple header. We have this Earlier, we did, we were part of a wonderful, along with Jack, too, and others, a wonderful ModPo live webcast, interactive webcast. And then, a few hours after this poem talk, there'll be a poetry reading, which anyone can find soon enough, segmented and recorded at your amazing Pen Sound page. So that's what Erica Kaufman Day is, and I'm just saying hi and welcome to Erica Kaufman Day. Thank you, Al. Jack, when I read your title, I realized I have belatedly not congratulated you on the rank of associate professor with tenure. Thank you. Yeah, that's super exciting. What a fun thing to be tenured. (laughs) It is a fun (laughs) thing. Do you feel a little free? I I do. Okay, great. All right. So we talked as we were getting coffee, both of us drinking decaf, by the way, two very energetic people. Drink decaf. Don't need more. <laughs> um, you mentioned your next book, so I just really want you to say in a word or two or a sentence or two what the next book is. Yeah, it's uh, Dyke Bars, and then there's an asterisk, uh, and it's about using the trans asterisk to open up what the lesbian bar was, is, and might yet be. 
um, and rethinking kind of radically what a lesbian bar is and, you know, who it left out and who it included and why we're, why it's the only lesbian space we can ever think about. What, what, what else is out there for us in the future? So the 2020 book is 1983 to 2008. Did yeah. I get those years right? Yeah. This one is going to be a starting year and then dash open. D- d- yeah, 1912. Yeah, yeah. The first women's bar ever in the United States. I'm starting with that. I'm sure there were some side long glances, some, hey, how do you do? I just want to recommend <laughs> the obvious, and you've already had this recommended to you. Go with a commercial press, sell a lot of copies, because I think this, this don't you think? Yeah, Definitely, Jonathan, yeah. It's a, there's some copies to be sold. It's amazing how many articles there are every week on lesbian bars. It's, I, I get yeah. every alert from But Google. not a book yet. But not, there's actually one book. Uh, it's uh, from it's a uh, 15 years old, I think, and it's about lesbian bars in TV and film. There's no actual book about actually existing lesbian bars. Okay, ever. So we so. have just sold a couple copies. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Thank Jonathan you. Dick. It's great to see you. It's good to Thank see you. you. Too, Thanks for joining us. Of course. The last time we did a poem talk, it was so much fun. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about the first poem in Myung Mi Kim's much admired book, Under Flag. Under Flag was published by Kelsey Street Press in Berkeley in 1991. And our poem is And Sing We, And Sing We. Uh, and our recording of the poet reading this piece comes from her extensive pence out page from a reading given in Berkeley in 2007, recorded by Ross Craig. Thank you to Ross Craig for making the recording and making it available to us at Penn Sound. So here now is Myung Mi Kim performing And Sing We. And sing we. Must it ring so true so we must sing it to span even yawning distance? And would we be near then? What would the sea be if we were near it? Voice. It catches its underside and drags it back. What sound do we make? Speak. And it is sound in time. Deplete, replete with barraging, slurred and taken over, diaspora. It is not the picture that will save us. All the fields fallow. The slide carousels near burnout and yet flash and one more picture of how we were to be. If we live against replication, our scripts stricken, black ants, on tar, ponderous, pending change. Fable voices, fabled voices say to us. And this breaks through unheralded. Sardines brown to a crisp over charcoal is memory smell elicited from nothing. Falling in that way. Umpa. Umpa sensibility of the first grade teacher, feet firm on the pump organs, pedals. We flap our wings, butterfly wings, butterfly, butterfly, fly over here. Once we leave a place, is it there? Prattle, heard, found, made, in kitchen, no longer clinking against the sides of the pot set to boil, prattle, Displaced guard birds that should have been near all along. Prattle done, prattle gone. Just how far do voices carry? What we might have explored already 
discovered, falling down, falling down, call back, fall back, whip, whippoorwill, not the one song to rivet us, trundle, rondo, not a singular song, trundle, rondo, what once came to us whole, in this we are again about to do, in the times it takes to dead, 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 la, 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 trundle, rondo, for a long time it stood marker and marked, mostly, we cross bridges we did not see being built. We get to the third stanza, depending on your, how you're counting stanzas, because Myung is doing a lot with the look of the thing on the page. But the stanza that begins depletion replete, and the third line of that begins with the capitalized word diaspora. It's at that point that if we were just being a little sleepy and just reading this poem we begin to realize what it might be about. But here's my question to start with, starting with Erica. We already know, maybe, on upon third or fourth reading, or maybe, if you're really sharp, on the first reading, diaspora is not a surprise appearance at that point. Reading backwards from that word, how do we know from the beginning lines, if we do, that it is about diaspora? Is there anything before that that we can read backwards and see that that's what one of its topics. I think that that the title is at least for me when I began to think about the question, or the um, you know the importance of diaspora to what this poem is trying to do, and the way that the title and singwe immediately makes me think about oh say can can you sing? Mm-hmm. So there's something that is signaling the anthem, but at the same time... The national anthem of yes, the United States, the yes, Star Spangled Banner. The Star Spangled Banner. But at the same time, it's it's the words are in a different order. Mm-hmm. Um, so right from the title, I'm already thinking about tension between languages. Mm-hmm. I think the tension between languages comes through also towards, I guess Al would count this as the second stanza, but yes. we have the line that the poet speaker says, sounding out certain consonant sounds and Obviously, we can think here about language pedagogy, which is another sort of recurrent theme across this book. Um, And it's a huge theme across this poem, which is interested not just in singing, but also in other types of vocative noises, yawning, voicing, um, sibilance, stuff like that. I think think that's maybe another way that we can tie in um, or prefigure the, the diaspora that comes in the third stanza. And Jack, by the time we get to the end, it becomes almost a sound poem. So this is what... I'm just going to stipulate, Jack, that this is what poetry does so well among the genres of writing, because as Jonathan figured it, it's a poem about voicing and the struggle with voicing in a new place, and it does it itself, so it does what it's about. Am I right? And if so, what do you want to say about that? I I think it does. I also think there's this longing, this uh, geographical longing, the distance. Like, what is the yawning distance? What would be? Ne- what uh, What would the sea be if we were near it? And it feels like it's filled in with this language um, in between that she that she can't get back to this place. Where is this place? Um, yeah, and I absolutely at the end. Uh, I mean, I had to had to I dug into each of these worlds, especially Trundle Rondo. What is a trundle rondo? I was so I didn't look up rondo, but it's a it's a musical form, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you know, it goes from the A 
and then the you get a B, then you go back to the A. But it's not C. spelled that way. Is no, it? no, no, no. It's just the, the the structure of the of the of the refrains, the a, getting that A refrain over and over and over. And then I was tr- looking through this, thinking, is there a refrain? And is the refrain the longing for space? And then you get different forms of language. That is this like a form of a rondo too? Mm. Jack, you're a geographer, so you get the first crack at this question. But then I I, <laughs> I would love to hear everyone on this. Um, once we leave a place, is it there? Oh. That's heartbreaking. There's oh, no question mark, but we know it's a question. Jack, you first. Once we leave a place, is it there? Uh, it's there to her, but what version of it that keeps changing over her life? She's so young when she leaves Korea, uh, South Korea, and, and she's, uh, she's holding on to it. And, and, of course, it becomes about the language um, that's, and, the, and the ways that her mouth can or can't move. Uh, to 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 embrace this, and she's in all this white space of the United States, like all this literal white space in the in the white space of the United States. Erica, once we leave a place, is it there? That's a tough question. I think one of the things that's really interesting about the poem is that it continues to be there, but it's through sound. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which um, what Jonathan was saying about her use of sound throughout the poem. There's a way in which um, sound is kind of a space that doesn't necessarily belong to any language. So therefore, the what different sounds are referencing feels personal. So it feels like that perhaps is at least a way that a memory of a place might continue to live on. Mm-hmm. I think that point's really nice also because this stanza is the one stanza in the latter half of the poem which is not full of those strange sort of sonic repetitions that I was mentioning earlier. I mean, this this stanza breaks through unheralded from all of those sort of slurring noises and comes to us crystal clear, um, which, I mean, is, is interesting because obviously these are childhood memories too. And so for some reason, um, beyond the, the depletion replete with barraging, there are these... Um, memories of sardines that can be recalled. And, and it's also uh, that smell memory, right, that she mm-hmm. calls a smell memory. And not only once we leave a place, is it there, is it the memory, but it's also the geographical imagination of the place, right? And what's been told to you and what, what you conceptualize it to be, you know, because there's very little about what the landscape ever looks like, right, the, the physical landscape. Let's talk about Prattle, the second to last stanza. I don't know how to read the first two lines in the conventional, you know, trying to have a basic sense of the setting. So when I think of the kitchen, of, let's say, a memory of an immigrant family in the kitchen, that's a place where um, there's there's potentially an unalienated feeling, right? So prattle, parentheses, heard, found, made in kitchen no longer clinking against the sides of the pot set to boil, Prattle displaced. So I'm trying to figure out where Prattle stands. Is Prattle the, the yada, yada, yada bullshit of American teachers just going on in their language and it sounds like Prattle? Or is, the, is Prattle a positive thing of the family members voicing themselves in a way that is warm, like a kitchen? And we'll start with Erica. What do you do with prattle? It's a great word. It is a great word. And and this is a stanza where the sound is, um, like, my reading of this stanza is largely grounded more in sound than in what the words are actually saying. 
Um, so prattle, heard, found, made, and kitchen, that, that sounds exactly like what you were mentioning before, Al, about the immigrant's kitchen. But then we quickly move into no longer clinking again, so then it becomes an absence. And there's this moving back and forth between noise and silence that's happening in that stanza. I'm avoiding your question about prattle, partially because I, I don't quite know how to answer it other than to look at um, the way that the word sound and what that signals to the reader about possibly figuring out what it means to exist between languages or in a space where, you know, you're, for, for Myung Mi Kim, I, I would imagine it's a space where you're not speaking English, but you're also not speaking Korean, where you're, you're kind of caught between these two worlds and imagining how to find oneself out of that space. What happens when prattle is displaced? I, I, I think of the word prattle, which is onomatopoeic, I think of it as already displaced. It's sort of like semantic sense taking a back seat and sound coming out. How could that be displaced? Sounds like it's already displaced. Jonathan, can you help us with prattle displaced? Uh, sure. I mean, I was also hoping that you would not turn to me next because prattle has been bothering me since reading this. Just it's it's a cool. tough it's a tough We're word. We're in the right to, spot then. Yeah, yeah. Tough word to think about, but um, you know, immediately because of the you know diegetic context of this stanza, which takes place in a kitchen, I'm thrown back to the sardines of the stanza prior and the way that that memory sort of breaks through unheralded. Um, and I think I think one way to think about the prattle would be by thinking about the rattling of that memory um, in one's noggin um, that is there, but that cannot, you know, be there constantly. It has to, it fades, it dis, it's displaced at some point. But um, maybe one way to connect that to the last two lines of this passage, I mean, we're returning to the other moment in which voice is used, which is sort of at the beginning of that second stanza. And I think we're asked in that moment, since it, you know, it, it comes after the, the, the yawning distance that exists between the sea and us, um, voice is, is invoked here as a way of crossing large divides. But this stanza, which asks rhetorically, perhaps, or literally, um, how far voices can carry throws into question maybe how much of a yawning distance a voice can cross, or maybe how frequently it can cross. Um, so maybe that's how I would try to connect it, but I'm not sure if this was cogent. I prattled, uh, and I'm you not ashamed to admit it. You did not prattle. You did a fucking great job, if I may say. That was really... You took us a long way. Jack, bring it home. I, I envisioned... Um, I've always used, heard the word prattle associated in a, in a, a negative context with women chatting. Mm meaninglessly so i saw these mothers i saw these i saw the mothers chatting in the kitchen talking um and i thought a lot about being uh you know asian american mothers in the 1960s in the united states is like what was that like um and uh to like how prattle is a as a word about to chatter meaninglessly um but it it, it seems meaningful Right. And because if the voices don't carry, you know, it, there's something to it. We, we want it to carry. I don't know what to do with the guard birds. We skipped that. Yeah, I, we got to do the guard birds. OK, good. But before we do the guard birds, <laughs> I just want to go back to Jonathan's suggestion that his response was itself prattling. That's what's happening. That's what's so great about this book. Mm -hmm. It's what's so great about the kind of poetry we admire in this way that we can, you know, take a whole poem talk to talk about one poem. Yes, you were prattling because that's what the poem gets you to do. 
<laughs> it's and you know once we get to traddle, which I assume is a neologism. Does anybody look it up? Is it a real a word? A pellet dropping of an animal. Oh my God! I've looked up everything. So it might as well be a neologism because right. who's ever used that word? <laughs> Wait. So how are you going to put it in context? Prattle done traddle. So my words are like little droppings. Gone. Just yeah. how far do voices carry? Yeah. We're all prattling now. Well, I mean, I think yeah. that throws into ironic question the voice that the second stanza opens with, which suggests that um, the power to speak or sing in plural is a power to cross seas. I mean, if prattle is done and traddle is a dropping, um, the rhetorical question of just how far voices can carry seems to suggest that voice amounts to shit in the end. Mm. And I think that's really funny. Um, Not just ironic, shit, obviously. but diminutive shit. Sure, yes. yes. Little dropping. Tiny, tiny, yes. Oh, I love that. Okay, so to get to Garbert's, we have to work together on distance and nearness, because that's been a theme from the beginning, to span even yawning distance. Mm -hmm. And would we be near then? What would the sea be if we were near it? Okay. Then, second to last stanza, guard birds that should have been near all along, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so how are we going to connect this whole issue of nearness to these guard birds? Erica, you taught this poem recently. What did you do? Did you avoid the guard birds? Sure did. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of, I want to back up a tiny bit because one of the things that I'm noticing now is that there are so few end stop punctuation marks in the poem. There are only three periods. One comes after diaspora. The third is prattle, displaced, period, guard birds. And that, you know, that just feels significant to me in some way. Um, like there's obviously an intentional pause that's longer than the pause that one takes with a comma that's holding us up between prattle, displaced, guard birds. Guardbirds is just sitting out there, Jack. I know. I, I, won I was wondering if they were the ones leaving the traddle behind. Um, once I looked up traddle, I, I, I. That's why I think it's the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that. So this is a poetic gesture akin to what you get in Keats or Wallace Stevens. You know, there's always being in the social world, which has its own meaning making, and then of course there's the poet's dream of pure sound outside the window, and it's the birds, typically, right? So it's kind of a conventional romantic idea. They should have been near. It's a pretty strong statement. Garbirds that should have been near. Where where the hell are you, pure poetry, when I need you? Roo-coo-coo, the sound of the bird. Yeah. I, I imagine that the garbirds, if they were anything, I was like, are they grandmothers? Are they the aunties mm -hmm. that aren't in the kitchen? With mom, like, who are the other people who would have kept an eye on me, who kept an eye on us, kept, protected us? Like, the, the world we left, the culture we lost when we had to, had to leave. Mm. I want to go back to sort of Erica's point about the end stops, because I hadn't noticed that the, there, were very, there were very few periods in this poem. And I think you're totally right, especially knowing um, how careful Myung Mi Kim is with her lineation. And I guess maybe one of the reasons why Guard Birds, for me, is such a troubling 
word is, is not just because the end stop before it signals that it's the start of a new clause. And so we can't like weirdly amalgamate it into prattle dispersed, prattle displaced guard. Like there's no way to sort of like um, synthesize it, but also the that that begins the next stanza is also dangling as a dialectic word. It refers to like anything that was sort of just said. And so I'm not sure if that should have been near is referring to the guard birds or mm-hmm. to the thing that is supposed to be near that we are talking about in the second stanza. It, and I think maybe that's another way that we can think about productive prattling in this poem. The book is called Under Flag. And uh, and Sing We, as Erica noted, is so much uh, a recollections sonic recollection of the Star Spangled Banner. So you've got these allegiant tunes, ditties, and then you have the opening two lines, and my question now is going to be, starting with Jack, what is it? And sing we, must it ring so true, so we must sing it? First of all, the two it's could be different. Yes. And if they are, what are they? (laughs) I think when I first read this, I was thinking it was nationalism. It was uh, joining a new country. It was, um, you know, taking a test, pledging allegiance and things like that. I thought that was the first Meaning it. we'd, please, I don't want it to ring so true. Why, why does it have to ring so true? Right, yeah. And then also the place, is it there? That is also the it, right? It doesn't go away um, in this new identification, this new citizenship. Erica? It. I had a very similar reading of it. It reminded me a lot of um, the the tests that you take to become a citizen in mm-hmm. the United States, and there's something happening syntactically, um, you know, in the title that then feeds into that first couplet. Must it ring so true? So we must sing it. So it feels like the nation state, the country. Mm-hmm. By putting must at the beginning. The, the sentence becomes a question. Must it ring so true? So we must sing it. And I think that that's almost this ironic deflation of that nation state in some way. We can, we can maybe, maybe that's one possible way of reading it. But I think you're right, Erica. I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of reversing of like word order in this poem that I think um, frustrates any sort of like easy reading of like what the nation state is doing in it. Yeah, and that's a moment, too, where the absence of the end-stop punctuation is fascinating. Because there isn't a question mark. Mm -hmm. So we read, must it ring so true? You know, tonally without a question mark, it reads as a statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Which feels as though there's a reclaiming of the way one thinks about the it. I'm going to ask Zach to play again. The poet performing, and it's a very understated performance we have here, performing the last stanza. And I want to just stipulate again what I said before, which is that it kind of becomes more and more of a sound poem. And my question to you all is going to be something like this. Is the sound poem-ishness of the end itself a resistance to the kind of allegiance singing that the poet is being asked to do. And when you can undo it, of course, by making, by prattling at the end. What we might have explored, already discovered, falling down, falling down, call back, 
fallback, whip, whippoorwill, not the one song to rivet us, trundle, rondo, not a singular song, trundle, rondo, what once came to us whole, in this we are again about to do, in the times it takes to dead, 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 la, 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 trundle, rondo, for a long time it stood marker and marked. Mostly, we cross bridges we did not see being built. Jack? It feels a bit like coming undone. Uh, it does feel like resistance. It feels like re- refusal, more than resilience. And reworking, too. It feels uh, uh, re- reworking what's been given you um, and finding another way of, of you know trundling on propelling yourself forward. Jonathan? I mean, I think the resistance is to sort of point to one moment that I think, I think you're right, um, Jack. Uh, the one moment that I would sort of point to to sort of emphasize that is we have in the sort of third last line an interruption of a sentence. Um, the sentence that was supposed to be finished is interrupted by things that are dead, 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 la, la, la. And it's, it almost, I mean, if I'm thinking about my childhood, I put, you know, what you put my fingers in my ear and say, la, 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 like, as if you're not hearing something. Um, it's this really great That's moment. That's resistance. That is. And it's this really great moment where the one song that we might sort of fantasize about um, is it, the idea that there couldn't be, can be some sort of straightforward meaning um, is physically prohibited. There's also a way in which in that last stanza, some of the songs that I'm tempted to want to think of as songs begin to collapse on each other. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is, what we might have explored already, discovered, falling down, falling down. I think about the London Bridges falling down mm-hmm. song. And that comes back again at the very end of the poem with the bridges in the last line. And in the middle of that stanza, you get the not the one song, not a singular song, and then the repetition of Trundle Rondo. So it feels as though all of these different sounds and songs that are connected to potentially childhood, but also place and, and geography and memories or s- memories of sounds that one has, they all begin to collapse on each other and become um, differently legible. And it, it makes me want to return to Al's question about, you know, if this is becoming a sound poem at the end, like, what do we make of that? And it feels to me like, this is an enactment of the way in which poetry, I think, possesses a very unique ability to disrupt things and to kind of create new structures where things are talking to each other and relating to one another. And you see this happening really clearly, purely through the sounds in that last stanza. Especially the songs of nationalists' socialization. Yep which if one is new to it, one hears it with weird ears and therefore can more easily resist or is in, a, mm-hmm. in an ironically more privileged position because it grates on your ears. But once, what once came to us whole, the umpa umpa of the Sousa-like allegiance or the, the hell do we call it, to the flag, Pledge of, uh, Pledge, of Pledge of Allegiance? I can't even <laughs> say it. What once came to us whole in the middle of 
as Jack was saying, in the middle of, of words or sounds that are falling apart, um, we don't even finish that sentence. What, what is it that once came to us whole? Now it's broken up. Okay, so the last line is fabulous. We cross bridges we did not see being built. Jack? I, I, I was interested in the way she read it, mostly, and then there was a really long pause. We cross bridges. We did Meaning not Meaning not, not, not always, not often. Yeah, yeah, just like ugh, this long pause. We cross bridges. We did not see being built. And I was thinking, again, I, London Bridge was in my head the whole time with the falling down, falling down. Um, and the callback, fallback. Because um, the callback is to go back to, callback is, a, is to return to a location. Um, and a fallback is a retreat. So they're, they're very, those are spatial too. And then when we get to the ends with these bridges, Obvious, I mean, I assumed it was anyone who's different, not and not only immigrants, but people who uh, don't see the the kind of um, connections that are built for them in advance. They don't know what's there, but also the bridges that they have to build for themselves. That they're that they're constantly having to make these connections and do this labor to make sense of where they are and who they are, or facing a structure that is pre-built and something Oof. that you have to either accept if you want to get across from one place to the next. But you don't understand why they were built, how they were built, and why it's ready-made. Maybe you shouldn't cross. I have two more questions for you before we wrap up with final thoughts for everybody. Amiel Alcalé, who I always trust on topics like this, described this as poetry of witness. So my question there would be, what is Amiel thinking? What is the, where is the witnessing here? Is there a will to bear witness? Um, and the second question, I'm going to bundle it together, and you can pick either one, comes from Kathleen Frazier, who, probably not referring just to this poem, but maybe to the other poems overall in Under Flag, talks about how in these poems you will sense the eroding presence of war and how it damages the wholeness of human experience. To the extent that what Kathleen observes in the whole book, do we find that here? First question, poetry witness. Second, the eroding presence of war as being responsible for the damaging to wholeness. Jonathan, you first, wanna pick one of those? Sure, I will uh, tackle the witness question. I guess, because when, when you asked this question, my mind immediately went to the third stanza, I guess we would count it, which is a stanza in which we're given the only direct quotation um, in the poem, and that direct quotation reads, it is not the picture that will save us. When we think about witnessing, often photographic evidence is used as material proof that an event has happened. It's It, it, it stands as archivable material for a particular traumatic event. And the drama of this stanza is that the slide carousel, which is a photo projector, is near burnout. It's sort of like eroding its capacity to, um, to, to display pictures. And we're told that the picture is actually not what's going to be perhaps the witness thing, mm. um, which invites us maybe to speculate about what kinds of witness in this poem are actually um, plausible and good if the photograph is not the one that will be good. I'll leave that open. Um, wow, Jonathan, that is so great. What you just said, because the fields fallow. I mean, is this the Korean landscape years later after the war or not? Maybe even not so many years later. 
um, is this a post-war thing? And the slide carousel is displaying the family, the past, the scenes. And as you say, the burnout is what happens when you leave a slide in uh, with, a, with a hot bulb too long. If you look at that picture, if you dwell on that picture too long, the picture will actually burn out with a pun on psychological damage. That's really great. I'm so glad that you pointed out that whole section, which we hadn't talked about. Yeah, I I was actually focusing on um, the same moment that Jonathan drew our attention to with the slide carousel. And more specifically, I was thinking about what it means to witness and the moment where the poem says one more picture of how we were to be. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating construction because we expect as readers for it just to be how we were, but the to be at the end, I think, echoes this idea of witnessing because it's you're you're looking at the fallow fields and you're seeing, you know, you're you're at once rooted in history, but also, you know, thinking forward. So, so there's this in-between space that I think is really important anytime we think about poetry as a form that witnesses or even, you know, I can't help but want to read, and I don't know that this is quote-unquote correct, but I, I feel like there's an element of this poem that's, that's working as almost a documentary poem. Mm. There, certainly. Right. I was interested also the how we were to be and the way that she reads it was uh, flash and one more picture of how we were to be of how just how did it even happen to and I was looking at the two to three million civilian deaths in the Korean War which was never actually declared as a war a police civilian deaths civil, those were just civilian deaths and then it was declared as a police action it was a you know a war run through the UN it was never war that was never officially declared. Um, and to think about, but she is born in 1957, and the war is tech, you know, war is over, if war is ever over, 1953. And so, and they, and they emigrate, her family emigrates in 1966. So she's born after, she's in, she's born in the aftermath of war, and she witnesses this, and then she leaves and carries that with her, right? And, it, and, and is it eroding? Is that witness constantly eroding and re-witnessing in her life, something that you can't let go of? And you come to the place right, where the allegiant ditties, sing-songies, complete sounds, are all kind of celebrating a certain obliviousness about that, the millions dead. And this is like ground zero, as it were, of the displacement that you have to feel. So socialization to wholeness, especially in the 60s, a time of incredible affluence, where there's another Asian war going on, it all gets very complicated. What's really interesting, I'm, I'm thinking still about Erica's provocation that this could be a documentary poem, is that, I mean, the line that, that you nicely pointed out is written in the subjunctive mood, which is like a wish-fulfillment mood, and so much of this poem is conditional. And so if it is a documentary poem, it is a poem about like a speculative history or a speculative future, one which might exist, um, does exist, but which does not have sort of a record perhaps. And so, you know, the, the, the invocation to these pictures of how we were to be expresses like the ideal of what we could have been. And I, th I think that that type of um, speculation is really, really interesting here. 
Um, I'm not sure what else to do with it, but I think it throws a wrench in our attempts to sort of like rigorously historicize it or pin down the poem to one particular event or particular war, because it's not about just one particular war. It's about sort of speculatively many, many wars. It makes me think about about memory studies and, you know, the, the way that memory can be passed on from generation to generation, even if you didn't witness it firsthand. And... Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of floored by the stanza that ends once we leave a place. Is it there? Because that's that's a moment where we're getting what I think are a series of of memories. And um, the prosody of the stanza is different from the rest of the poem too, in that there's a prose moment mm-hmm. in it, and it seems as though there's a different kind of recollection going on. Um, particularly in the move from umpa umpa sensibility of the first grade teacher, feet firm on the pump organ's pedals. We flap our wings, butterfly wings, butterfly, butterfly, fly over here. I'm assuming that that, that latter part with the butterfly might be part of a children's song. Um, and then there's a stanza break or, or a little bit of white space. And once we leave a place, is it there? So in this case, there's a way in which leaving a place is both real and imagined. And, and there's a questioning of, of, you know, how do we actually know what we're remembering? Right. Hot war over 53, birth 57. So as Jack was suggesting, this is a poem of after that realizes that during never becomes an after. It's always a during. And this poem has a lot of during in it, even though the setting is often in the world of the young immigrant in the U.S. Or to put it another way, the primary witnesses, those who bear witness, are probably those guard birds she kind of wishes were still around. The intergenerational trauma is represented by all that prattling, that she's probably tired of hearing, but she realizes she's a secondary witness, and that secondary witnesses has a, have as much to say about during as the primary witness, and she doesn't want to break the chain of witness. And so this is the prologue poem to a book about what it's like to be the secondary witness. We could go on and on and on. Happily, this is amazing. What I'd like to do is ask each of you just to offer a final thought, something that you wanted to say today as you prepared to come to this conversation but haven't had a chance to yet. So who would like to offer a final thought? Well, when I read this, I wound up thinking a lot about the geographic concept of scale, you know, the local, the regional, the global. And there's this really neat idea of scale jumping that Neil Smith wrote about. Um, so something that's very local that gets blown up to this massive import and how does that happen? And I was thinking instead of scale collapse, which I've never thought of before, but I feel that um, the idea that anything can be so neat as scale that 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 you can actually separate um, the, this morning, this melancholia, you know, across generations or across oceans or um, you know over a lifetime that that it's all. It's also tightly tied together, um, and it made me yeah, it made me think differently uh, about my work and what I teach. Um, yeah, 
So you, have, you can't ha- leave us hanging like that. What, <laughs> what about the way you teach? Well, just that, I mean, just that I, I teach about this idea of scale, that there are different scales. And it, it's a concept of power and it's a concept of, of territory or distance. Um, the body, the home, the, the, the street, the neighborhood, you know, up, 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 up to the universal. Um, and it's a great analytical tool. But how do, we, how do we think about that differently in our everyday life when we're, when we're living across so many scales at once? I think that's what I want to get across to my students. I wish I were your student and geography. Wow. I mean, I just, who knew <laughs> geography is a thing. Sorry. I'm teasing. <laughs> well, I mean, we live in the country of empire, so we got rid of it. You know, don't, pay no attention to what we're doing beyond Forget the curtain. The, yeah. Do not study geography. Do not. Do not. Study geography. Don't, don't, don't realize. Don't realize how much power. <sighs> oh my gosh. So you're just, you, you're in a marginal discipline. Very yeah, one of the, one of the smallest social scientists. Unless you go to Canada or the UK or Australia, geography is much bigger than sociology. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Spending the day with you makes me think like geography and poetry belong together. So oh, thank they you. do. Oh yes, yeah, I think they so do. too. Oh, I think my final remark actually can hop on that about scale and geography and poetry because the point that I had wanted to raise from the get go was just typographically. Voice is set off at a yawning distance from the rest of the stanzas. It's the only, for anybody who doesn't have a copy at home, it's the only word in this poem that has a right-facing or a right-indented orientation. And what's really beautiful about it being placed there between a line that is about the speculative sea and a line about sort of dragging that sea back is the voice, which is rooted in a body, which is um, a, a scalar micro thing compared to a sea. Um, it's, the, it's the power that is allowed to sort of bring that sea back and drag it into phoneticized language, which happens sort of in the uh, sort of line that follows. And so if I'm thinking about scale jumping, I think what's really beautiful is this poem sort of demonstrates at the typographic level that the sort of scalar leaps that Jack was mentioning um, and that get encoded with that line about voice being the thing that can possibly potentially drag the sea's underside and bring it back. Beautiful. Thank you. Follows perfectly. Erica, final thought? I think for my final thought, and, and I want to build on on what you're saying, Jonathan, about voice, and I want to notice something about... Um, this poem, but also I think about the book as a whole under flag and Young Me Kim's work. I remember the first time I encountered this work, it completely blew my mind. And part of that is because it it was almost like a meta poetry that enacted a potential for something that poetry could do that I hadn't really understood. And I read somewhere in the way that... Um, in my preparation for today, I was reading interviews with Myung, and I read her describe someplace um, her relationship to poetry or her thinking about what poetry does. And she says somewhere that poetry enables one to participate in inventing how change takes place. And I'm thinking a lot about that statement in relation to the way that this poem enacts change through I think what we notice about how it appears on the page and how the stanzas spread further across the page as we get towards the end of the poem, but also in the different things that are happening syntactically. And I also think that this is a poem that you could just read infinite times as we're seeing where, you know, I think it's a poem that when you read it once, you might have a sense of like, you know, this is an amazing poem that's really speaking to 
immigration and the relationship between immigration and language. And then every time you read it, something different happens. And that's part of what is incredible about it. Thank you. My final thought is um, brings in a line we haven't talked about, I don't think. If we live against replication, our scripts stricken, et cetera, et cetera, that, that stanza ends, fable voices, fabled voices say to us. It's grammatically an inc- incomplete sentence unless you go to the next stanza and add to it. But I just want to focus on living against replication. Because scripts stricken invokes writing, I want to read living against replication as a linguistic idea, a theory of language. This is a great argument against denotation, description, an empirical sense of what language does. It names the world. When it does so imprecisely, it feels bad and tries again to get to precision. And living against replication is going to refuse that equivalence, that perfect translation, the impossible perfect translation. So it's a resistance. And then I hear fabled voices say to us, and I'm, I'm in trance, I'm, I'm hallucinating Eliot's uh, drowning voices wake us. <laughs> I just keep thinking those fabled voices are Sousa and the Umpa, first grade teacher putting butterflies on you and saying, be in this American school play, or the Pledge of Allegiance. And therefore, the living against replication is a way of refusing uh, an alphabetical response that can be read. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us, if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands speak for yourself, Al, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or the geography world, whatever. What would you recommend? Erica, you have a recommendation? I would recommend Under Flag in its entirety. Um, It was Myung Mi Kim's first full-length book. It first was published in 1991 and I think is in its third printing. The entire book is extraordinary, as are all of Myung Mi Kim's books. Jonathan, gather some paradise. Oh, well, I haven't read too much poetry lately, so I'm going to deflect and pick a novel, if that's all right. Um, But Rivka Galchin has this really great novel called Atmospheric Disturbances about a psychiatrist who comes home one day to think that his wife is not his wife and is just a doppelganger in her place. Um, And he gets sort of taken into this insane journey that ends in like weather prediction it's really fantastic and Rivka Galchin has an incredible authorial voice so I would recommend that fantastic thank you yes it is okay to talk about an uh, I can almost not say it a novel oh, I know <laughs> it makes me sick <laughs> you are welcome anytime Jonathan to come back and talk about novels I will although I don't take you up on that we will do a poem talk about a novel. How would we do that? Close reading one particular passage. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. You propose it. We'll do it. Jack, did you think of something? 
I I did. Um, I adore and finally was able to really sit with Meet Me There, Normal Sex, and Home in Three Days, Don't Wash by Samuel Ace, which is this incredible uh, uh, kind of going back and forth between Sam Ace, uh, who published a series of poems uh, before he transitioned uh, as Linda Smuckler. And going back and, and studied under Gloria Enzeldua and going back and forth um, and writing and opens with letters between Sam and Linda. Uh, and it is it is it is a crazy, wild, amazing, beautiful gift, this book. And then to go through these poems and to wrestle with who is who is who, when and how and how we are always all these things. So say the title again. Meet me there. Normal sex and home in three days. Don't wash by Samuel Ace. Fantastic. Thank you. So my Gathering Paradise, I have, I'm sure I have gathered paradise about this before. So longtime Poem Talk listeners, please forgive me. But I want to recommend Claude Lonsman's nine and a half hour film Shoah in this context. What Lonsman has the nerve to do is to point his camera with film stock that's cheap because he ran out of money in 12 years making this film, points the camera at the fallow fields of Europe and has you look and look and look until you either say, why is he making me look? I'm tired of looking. In fact, I'm kind of hallucinating at this point. Or I'm not going to watch anymore or I'm going to fast forward. Or, oh my, if I keep looking, I will see what happened without having to see the structures of death that were made. It's in the fields. It is not the picture that will save us. Lonsman uses not a single piece of documentary footage or photography in nine and a half hours when presenting the genocide of Europe, 1939 to 1945. That's what's being said here in our poem. It's the fields fallow. It's not, this is an alt documentary when i say this i mean this poem but also shoah it has the nerve to say to us keep looking it's kind of like close looking just to go back to close reading claude lonsman shoah nine and a half hours and i have to boast and say that recently i watched that film for the 24th time because I teach, teach it, and 24 times times nine and a half is a lot. One of my students came up to me and said, Al, you realize that you've spent more than nine days watching this film. Well, that's all the depletion replete with barraging we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so, so much to my guests, Erica Kaufman on Erica Kaufman Day, Jonathan Dick, Jack Giesking, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, a trio of amazing people, Zach Cardner, Leah Baxter, Chelsea Zhu, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, for their very generous support of Poem Talk in our next episode. Amber Rose Johnson, Yolanda Wisher, and Daniel Bergman will join me for a conversation about She Got, He Got by Jane Cortez and Erica's 
giving the proper expression. Look forward to that. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>